Tom Gianos is an engineer at Netflix, where he works on Genie, a job and resource management tool for the Hadoop ecosystem. Tom, welcome to Software Engineering Daily. Thanks, Jeff. Thanks for having me. What are the requirements for the Hadoop stack at Netflix? So there's a lot of stages in the, in the Hadoop stack at Netflix, and we're not just limited to Hadoop anymore, right? So we're getting to a very heterogeneous environment. I mean, we so Netflix, as I think is public knowledge now, we have over 65 million members. We're in 50 countries. We're at, you know, we support over a thousand devices, and people are watching, you know, over 10 billion hours of video a quarter. So we have a huge amount of data, and we're currently storing about. Let's see, 25 petabytes of data on Amazon S3. We uh, read about two and a half petabytes a day. Our users read two and a half petabytes a day out of the data warehouse. And we write about two and a half petabytes a day out of the warehouse as well. So we need a system that serves about 550 billion events. And we actively support about 350 data scientists and users per day. So we've got a lot of systems that we need to have active, not only to serve the user's jobs but monitor the health of the system and make sure that everything's running on a consistent basis for those users. How fast is the pace of Netflix data collection increasing? Um, that's a good question. So I started about a year and a half ago. I can say that when I started, Genie was serving about twelve to 15,000 jobs a day. We're up to almost 30,000 now. And... So we've basically doubled in just like a year, effectively. And um, in terms of data collection, our scale, I remember seeing some slides about a year ago that we were about you know, 15 to 20 petabytes. So we're growing pretty fast. What are the differences between running Hadoop in the cloud, like Netflix does, and running it in a data center? Um. So I've been in some other companies where we, we have run the data center. I mean, in a data center, you you know exactly what hardware you're running on and exactly what your layout's going to be. So everything is very optimized. But at the same time, you don't have the flexibility where if you want to stand up your own your own cluster for testing, if you want to tweak a parameter, you have to deploy it to the whole cluster. So for us at Netflix, we're able to... Um, if something's going wrong with the cluster or we have bad resources from Amazon, we can red black or basically bring down the cluster and bring it back up or augment with further clusters that can scale us out horizontally if we don't have enough resources in one cluster. Um, it gives us a lot more flexibility in terms of how we want to deploy the cluster. I mean, you have the trade-off where we store all our data in S3, and so you don't have the data locality for the Hadoop jobs immediately, but we've seen that the speed of that, the impact of that network translation or transition from S3 to the Hadoop HDFS at the beginning of a job is not worth, or is worth the trade-off of having that ability to bring up and down clusters rapidly. Yeah, I'd like to talk about those trade-offs at a higher granularity. What are the benefits of using S3 rather than HDFS? Um, so for us, it allows us to have one uh, ubiquitous data warehouse underneath all of our clusters. So we're not only serving uh, Hadoop clusters, but we serve, we have Presto clusters that we're running now. Um, we've got people, we could have Spark clusters, but currently we run Spark on Yarn within our Hadoop clusters. But it allows us to run all these systems on top of the same data warehouse, whereas if we were just running an HDFS, we'd have to 
write a lot of systems to pull that data out of the HDFS, uh, copy it over to a new HDFS every time we wanted to start a new cluster and, and all that mirroring and syncing. We don't have to do any of that. We can just tear down a cluster. The clusters are effectively stateless at that point and start up a new cluster without having to worry about data not being there. Everything stays in the same place. Is there a speed cost to using S3 over HDFS? Um, like I like I mentioned, there was so before my time was when this decision was made at Netflix, mm. but there were some tests done in terms of the overall performance and at the in terms of the overall speed that a you know a MapReduce pig hive whatever job runs, the speed to get the data from S3, especially because we're using EMR, like it's all in their backplane, it's pretty fast. So there's not the cost benefit analysis there is that the cost of that speed of getting the data into HDFS to, to launch the jobs is not that bad relative to the benefit we get from being able to launch clusters dynamically like that. Hmm. How big is the financial cost of using S3? Um, I can't really comment on that. I'm not privy to the uh, ah, <laughs> to the okay. contractual details that we have, so I can't really comment too much on that that side of things. I, I know that we don't we haven't seen anything in terms of a uh, cost hit. In fact, it's probably a little bit better because if you hmm. think about it, we don't have to scale our HDFS resources out to big enough to store our entire warehouse. It only needs to store whatever is being run at any given time in a, in a Hadoop cluster. So we can keep our Hadoop nodes a little bit, our Hadoop clusters a little more compressed than we need to, to not just store data. We only need the computational resources. That's interesting. Many of the Hadoop clusters that get spun up at Netflix are transient. Can you describe a transient cluster? Right. So, I mean, at other companies, especially if you have a, um, a data center, you're going to have you know, your production cluster, you're going to have your test cluster, and they're just going to be there for forever, right? Um, for us, a transient cluster, it doesn't mean that it just comes up and runs one job and shuts down. I know that's a very big EMR use case, but for us, transient means that we will run it for a period of time, but we don't have uh, a dedicated production cluster necessarily. We can have a few production clusters. We really have, usually we have one, but there's times where we scale up um, bonus production clusters and submit production jobs to those clusters when we shut them down we don't need them anymore um, if people are doing some sort of specific use case or testing we bring up clusters most of us as developers have our own clusters that we're tweaking or testing something with so we'll just stand up a cluster and shut it down within a day so but we, we still have access to all the data because the data is all on S3 like I was explaining earlier so that's what we kind of mean by transient nothing the computational resources are just come and go whether you want them does transients refer at all to the fact that cloud resources may go down at any time? Um, it can. So we, in our clusters, we do a lot of monitoring of the performance of each individual node, and we will prune out bad nodes all the time. So we're always getting nodes or releasing nodes within the cluster so long as um, they're performing well. We keep them, and if not, we just we just drop them and pick up a new resource from the cloud. So that's, you know, a much nicer feature than being in a data center where you have to worry wait for somebody to swap out a disk or something breaks in that node, it gets blacklisted for a while until somebody gets around to fixing it. What are some other ways that the, um, the the nature of 
like working on the cloud where where anything can go down at any time or you I mean I know Netflix operates under the assumption that cloud resources may go down at any time so I'm I'm curious how this affects Hadoop management holistically Um it's a good question so I'm trying to think so this is more of an operations type question but mm. for us we're constantly we're constantly monitoring the system so we do have to build a lot of tooling to make sure that we're monitoring what's up and what's down. And, you know, Amazon does a good job with their CloudWatch system. We have a lot of tools in terms of gathering metrics. So we gather a lot of metrics from our clusters to monitor the performance of the nodes, monitor job throughput, uh, all kinds of stuff that you're trying to monitor in terms of what resources are available, whether the resources that we're getting from Amazon are good or bad. Because, you know, a lot of times in a cloud system, you could have bad nodes and people are recycling those nodes through and because we're sharing resources with everyone else using AWS. So it's possible that just bad nodes are cycling through the system and we have to monitor and track those and, and drop them. So that it adds a little bit of operational stuff to daily management, whereas in a data center, you know, you kind of have your, your dedicated hardware and it's just there and you know it's good for a while at least. We kind of have a little bit more volatility that we just have to deal with. Let's move on to talking about Genie. What is Genie? So Genie represents really the the core of our data platform here at Netflix. What it's the central component that abstracts away the clusters from the systems that launch jobs. So if you can imagine it presents basically a common API set for launching various types of jobs on all of our computational resources. That's not limited to Hadoop, but could expand out to Presto and Spark and all these other tools that are coming along in the heterogeneous data environment that we have today. So Genie really, sometimes there's a misconception that Genie is a job scheduling platform. We don't really want it to be that because we would rather rely on the job scheduling resources or job scheduling programs that are already built into those tools. There's a lot more work going on in Hadoop with Yarn and Presto and all these tools about how Mesos, how they schedule jobs on their clusters. We don't want to do that. What we really want to do is abstract away the complexities of submitting jobs to resources so, and showing users their results and um, where to shift load. If entire loads need to be shifted around between our transient clusters, we can do that and those kind of things. So Genie really represents our abstraction layer from what our computational resources are to our end user jobs, like our end users build tools on top of Genie to get their data. Netflix is built on Amazon Web Services, and AWS provides a service called Elastic MapReduce, which is an API for provisioning and running Hadoop clusters. Why do you need a higher level API built on top of that API? So we use EMR to launch all of our Hadoop clusters, so to make that clear. Um, but at the same time, so you, you launch an EMR cluster and that cluster is sitting out there. But if you are a data scientist, do you really want to know the details of how to connect to that cluster where it's sitting? <laughs> as we as we bring up the transient, these transient clusters we've discussed earlier in the podcast, like how how does that end user, does he, really, he or she really care about how to get to that cluster? They just want to run a job. They don't care where that cluster is, really what its purpose might be. They just want to get their work done. So Genie... Um, sits in between kind of us as an ad as a data platform administration team 
and the users so that when we bring up a new cluster, it registers itself with Genie via our, you know, our admin scripts that launch the clusters via the EMR APIs. Once those come up, we register with Genie, and then that cluster is available for all users to use without changing any of their systems. So all of our SLA jobs, all of our UC4 templates, all of our uh, Python scripts, everything can still run without changing anything when a new cluster comes up. So it abstracts all that detail away from the users. They don't even know or care really when new clusters come up or where we load their job, just so long as they can get their results. This is kind of a naive question, but for listeners who may be somewhat unfamiliar with the Hadoop ecosystem, why is job and resource management so important for a Hadoop ecosystem? Well, resource management is obviously important for any system to make the best usage of what resources you have. So um, on a Hadoop ecosystem, you really, you're going to have various jobs that are doing various things and you want to be, get the best allocation of resources for those jobs, especially in a multi-tenant cluster like, like what we run. We're going to have people running Spark, we're going to have people running Pig, we're going to have people running Hive. It's going to be all over the place and those people all want to get their jobs done and we... Um, we can't really say whose job is more important, right? So we need to have resource scheduling layers, which we use Yarn for that allocates queues and resources so that every user gets their fair share of the cluster. Um, and it's very important that all the jobs can get done, especially anything that has uh, service level agreements like SLAs on them. We need to make sure that those jobs get through no matter what the load of the cluster is for other, other types of workloads. So Genie abstracts away the physical details of various Hadoop resources. Why is this advantageous for a developer who is submitting Hadoop or Hive or Pig jobs all day like a data scientist? So for them, they just need to say that they want to run a Pig job on a cluster that is like our ad hoc cluster. So, And then Genie figures out uh, based on how we've configured Genie, what the latest version of Pig is, where those Pig binaries are, it'll download and configure the the runtime environment. It will uh, download and configure the cluster configurations that we've already uploaded into S3 when the cluster was launched, and it'll basically set up the entire runtime for the user's job, so they can they can just submit. Uh, that I want to run a pig job on the production cluster, and Genie figures out all the details of what it takes to do that. They don't need to worry about whether their class path is set, whether they're running the latest pig, whether they're connecting to the right cluster. They just get on with their day. And then right next to that, they could run a Spark job or a, or a um, Presto job the same way via the same API. It's just submitting, I want to run a Presto job. Here's my query and Genie go take care of the details and then give me my results. So Genie writes out all the results in a common format. The users know exactly what to look for in their result directory, and they don't have to worry about you know, trying to figure out a new tool for every new system that comes along. When, when a new tool comes along, like when we developed, or we want, users wanted to use, um, what's it called, Scoop or... Uh, Druid, those kind of tools, we were able to just add them to Genie and they could go on with their days exactly how they did before with all the other tools that already existed within our infrastructure. Why is Genie useful for the administrators who are managing these Hadoop clusters? So one of the main advantages for us for Genie is that we basically, a lot of 
people develop, right? Like you do log into a gateway machine where clients and all the stuff is configured for various clusters. Um, and we do have that use case, but for us mostly it helps us to have Genie because we can horizontally scale out effectively gateways because each Genie node is effectively a gateway onto all of our clusters. And what we can do then is Genie can act as a single repository of all the configuration information for our clusters, all the commands or applications we support on those clusters. And we can leverage all of that to um, create a common environment across all of these systems. So everyone that wants to know what clusters are configured can query Genie. Everyone that wants to know what commands are configured can query Genie. Um, if we want to set up a hard gateway, they can download the configurations from Genie at runtime. So everything is synced up and we know exactly where to go to get the source of truth information for our entire platform. So does Genie manage the queuing of different jobs? We currently don't. So we have tried to straddle a line of not reinventing the wheel on job scheduling. Um, so right now, really, what Genie does is it it plays kind of, I don't want to use the word dumb, but it's the kind of the best word I can think of right now in terms of where to where to load a job. If you get a job, Genie is going to distribute it, and it's going to load it to wherever you asked it to load the job to. So, And it relies on the fact that that cluster or that resource has scheduling to handle how to run the job. Um, we do have layers built on top of Genie that are trying to add some more intelligence about which cluster to, to launch a job on. And we may load that back into future versions of Genie after we prototype and see how it works out. But we don't want to bake into Genie the internal knowledge of every possible computing resource that we have, right? So we don't want Genie to have to go to Hadoop and basically redo all the work that Yarn is already doing. We don't want Genie to go to Presto and figure out its scheduling algorithm. We don't want to do that for a Spark cluster. We want to leverage the tools that are already there because there's very large communities in the open source are doing a lot of work on these, these complex problems. So we don't want to reinvent the wheel on that. So for us, Genie will do what you tell it to do effectively. It won't. And if you want to send a ton of jobs to Genie, it's going to try and disseminate all the jobs of the cluster. To further explain how Genie works, I'd like to discuss some of these supporting technologies. What is Eureka? So Eureka is Netflix's discovery service where you register your application or your microservice effectively with Eureka so that other components of the system can, can find you. Um, and they can find you via whatever name you register your service with. So for us, when Genie, when Genie nodes come up in the cloud, right, people need to be able to discover where those clusters are. So Genie registers itself with Discovery. We call it Discovery internally, externally. The open source project is called Eureka. Um, so we register with Eureka, and then as other services come up that want to use Genie, they'll look up Genie in, in Eureka to figure out where to send their requests to. What is Ribbon? So Ribbon is Netflix's kind of inter-process communication library that's been open source. And what it does is effectively, it, first of all, it integrates with Eureka. So it will handle calling Eureka for you to find where the nodes you're trying to query are. And it will also do uh, client-side load balancing. So 
if for some reason you don't have a load balancer in front of your service, Ribbon will try to make sure that if you're sending a ton of messages, it distributes the messages equally amongst the services you're trying to call. So Netflix uses Amazon's auto-scaling groups. Could you define what an auto-scaling group is? It's a set of nodes or, or a cluster that will scale up or scale down based on what kind of rules you set up for those those activities. So you can say that, I mean, for Genie internally, we have a metric that says, that tracks the number of running jobs on the Genie cluster. And if the average gets above a certain level, we need to scale up our Genie cluster so that it can handle more load. So that's kind of what auto-scaling groups are. And you can imagine this is very important for us here at Netflix as different times of the day, people are going to be watching more more resources than other in different Amazon groups. So, you know, afternoon, evening time in the U.S., we're going to need more resources as people get home from work and watch TV at night versus um, earlier in the day when everyone's at work. So we need to scale up and scale down so we're not wasting a lot of money. Right. Can you describe the size and scope of Netflix's Genie deployment? Currently... We run, we have a production cluster, about 25 nodes uh, running on the i2, 2x or large instances. So they're, it's a pretty big cluster for considering the size of those resource types. And then we have um, some test clusters as well. And they're about, I don't know, 10 10 to 12 nodes right now just running because we run our test data pipelines through that as well to make sure that all the data is flowing properly through whatever everybody's testing in the test environment. So there are spans of time during the day where Netflix users aren't watching many movies and that leaves Netflix, the company, with a lot of spare compute power. Um, For listeners who may not know how uh, these compute resources work, why, why don't you just release those resources rather than having them uh, wait around with spare compute power? Um, well, I think we do release a lot of the resources, depending on which services you're talking about. People release them back into the resource pools. So some of our resources are uh, reserved, and that means we have basically Netflix has uh, contract with Amazon to get a certain number of instances mm. at any given time so that we have we always know we have enough to meet our minimum capacity and if those aren't being used they're released back into the to the Netflix pool and other services can get them so uh, the data on the data platform team we leverage this because what we'll do is during the trough hours for viewing we will scale up our computational resources to <laughs> Uh, catch up on batch processing jobs that we want to run. So we'll we'll stand up a new cluster that takes advantage of these available resources and we'll just run some jobs through to get more performance than we would if we just left our standard running clusters. But, um, you know, if we're using on-demand resources, which are part of the public resource queues, we release them back when we don't need them as well. Mm, Okay. So... Um, yeah, I guess what I was, I was just confused because I, I was reading about this and, you know, I obviously saw like, okay, so, you know, during peak hours, Netflix needs some 
giant number of servers to serve all the traffic in North America because everybody's watching Netflix at 7 p.m. But then, you know, when it's like 2 in the morning, these uh, resources are freed up and then you can run Hadoop jobs, you can run um, uh, ETL jobs on those uh, spare compute resources. But when I read that, I was like, well, there's no way that the compute that you need for the ETL jobs magically like matches up with um, the the difference between what uh, compute resources you need at, needed at 7 p.m. and what compute resources you needed at 1 a.m. So I was having trouble understanding what exactly was the relationship there. Does that make sense? Um, it does. So it's there's systems and tools in place that uh, tell us what resources are available at any given time, and we'll, we can launch clusters based on those sizes. So we'll say, can we can we launch a cluster with five hundreds of these nodes? Are they available in our account? And if we can't, we'll scale up to what size we need um, or what we can get, and then we run jobs and. Thanks to Genie, what, what can happen basically is we can jobs can be submitted with certain tags on them, and once those resources are or are not available, they can fall back to other clusters that we've already tagged with those same tags. So let's say um, we want to run an SLA job. Well, we can tag our production cluster with uh, I can run SLA jobs, and then we can tag this ad hoc cluster that comes up with this extra load with I can run SLA jobs and jobs will get submitted to both of those. But when the other cluster goes down, when, when, you know, viewing needs more resources again, those jobs will, the new submitted jobs that say that will get shifted back onto the original prod cluster without the users having to change anything on their side. So that's one of the things that Genie is there to help maintain. And one of the original reasons that it was developed. Mm. So you've referenced these different types of clusters that Netflix has for its Hadoop jobs. There are SLA clusters, and there are ad hoc workloads, and there are other types. Can you explain why these different categories of clusters exist? Um, yeah, so so there's reasons because there's different queuing algorithms that we want to use on different types of clusters. So uh, for um, like SLA clusters, right? We don't want jobs to start getting preempted. And for, for those who don't know, preemption basically means that your job has been marked as more important than somebody else's job. So you kill their tasks and your tasks take over. Um, so on our SLA cluster, we don't want that happening because all the jobs are pretty important. So we, we very strictly set out what the queues are and what their balances are. And we control what jobs go into those queues. Whereas on the ad hoc cluster, every user gets a basically a fair share and if somebody's not getting their fair share they can fairly preempt somebody else to say I'm not getting my fair share right now and I need to do my work so you're doing more work than you really you know need to be doing and I'll take that I'll preempt you and get some resources and you'll just have to do your work a little bit slower so there's a different use case there and but what we're finding as we go along now is that you know SLA and and ETL kind of has peak and trough hours as well, and so does um, the ad hoc use cases, which basically usually offset, right? So the peak hours of SLA jobs and ETL is usually during the night when after we're doing like a nightly batch to get yesterday's data all transformed and, and ready for people to query. And then during the day, people are going to be doing their ad hoc work for the data scientists. So 
there's a there's a load balancing that can go on there where you can shift jobs to various clusters during the day and night. So our ETL at night, we can shift that load onto the query cluster because there's not many users doing work at three in the morning. Whereas during the day, there's not many much ETL going on, so our users can take care advantage of some of the resources over on the other cluster. If that makes sense. Yeah. So a quote from the original blog post about Genie reads that end users simply want to run their Hadoop, Hive, or Pig jobs, and very few of them are actually interested in launching their own clusters. And uh, maybe this is a question you can't answer, but what types of users actually do want to launch their own clusters? Um, we really don't have off the top of my head, people that I can think of that do launch their own clusters right now, um, outside of our, you know the the real engineers working on the core products, getting Presto or Hadoop or them out. Um, the data scientists really just want to run their own thing, and they, they rely on us to launch. If they do have a use case that they need or that a team needs to get something done, they'll come to us to launch the resources. I don't think there's anyone that I know of from the data scientist organization that's really running their own personal clusters. So I can't really give you a reason why they would because it's just more trouble than they probably want to get into. And we have, you know, the expertise and experience to deal with it much better. What is a bonus cluster? <laughs> He's taking this all from the Genie One, the Genie One blog post. Um, uh, not all from the Genie One blog post. <laughs> yeah, this is all from before my time. Okay, well, so I, I, but I read that I was like, "What the heck is this thing?" Yeah, a bonus cluster. So that's basically what I was explaining earlier in terms of when um, product is giving up their their resources in the middle of the night when no one's using it. That's what we're taking, and we called them bonus clusters just because oh. they would. Okay. They would pop up and pop down. They, we okay. don't. We just call it bonus because it was like, yay, bonus, extra. I get it. Okay, that. So now this makes a lot more sense. Okay, so Genie is a restful API, and I promise we will get into Genie two point um, <laughs> That's okay. Genie Genie is a restful API for submitting Hadoop jobs without installing a Hadoop client. So for people who are maybe lost at this point, um, what are some of the advantages? for exposing a RESTful API for Hadoop jobs. Yeah, and I just want to be clear that it's not just Hadoop jobs, right? So Genie oh, is sure. meant to handle job submissions for any type of kind of big data. So we definitely submit Presto and all kinds of other things that aren't necessarily on the Hadoop platform, and it's not meant to be tied to Hadoop. But to answer your question about the advantages of a REST API, I mean, any API is going to abstract a lot of complexity for you and that's really the main benefit. And also because it's programmatic, we can build tools on top of it. So users don't have to worry about the details of, like I said kind of earlier, where, where the binaries are for their, for their command. They don't need to have them installed locally on their system. They don't need to configure them and install them. Genie will take care of all those details based on the configuration that's been done by, by system administrators. And we don't have to, from our perspective, we don't have to worry about uh, managing all those users' systems. We have to worry about managing Genie and it's a centralized location uh, where everything is is consistent and programmatically controlled and we can get all kinds of statistics and we, we interact in a very well-understood pattern where within Netflix, I mean, REST APIs are used for, for almost everything. So people understand how to interact with REST and it opens us up to a lot of tooling on top of it that people can 
have kind of a contract with and don't have to worry about uh, building a library into their own system to interact with Genie. Sure. What are the parameters that a user submits to run some kind of job? So usually um, they'll submit kind of a either a query file as an attachment to Genie or a command line arguments. Uh, and they'll tell us where their file dependencies are. So if they want to upload a whole bunch of things to S3, Genie will download those file dependencies for various pig scripts, let's say. Like a, if you have 10 pig scripts, you can say, I want to run these pig scripts in this order and the job will run. Um, they'll say the kind of their command line arguments and what they want the job's name to be, ID, where they want... Uh, output to be archived to, where they want to, um, if they want to get an email back when the job is complete, those kind of things. Typical things that you would expect from any kind of uh, job submission system. Sure. Um, so after a user submits the job using the RESTful API, how does the user track that job? So there are APIs for checking the status of the job. You can always query based on the ID that you either sent in with the job or the ID that's returned to you if you didn't supply an ID. You can keep querying Genie for the status of the job. Or like I said, you can get currently you can get an email callback. So we're, we're exploring other ways to um, alert users, whether that becomes something in the form of web sockets or callbacks or um, some sort of alert placed in a queue. We, we haven't really gotten into what that might look like yet and how that expands our users um, use cases but for now that's kind of how they do it they basically pull on the status apis so netflix is a customer of various big data services like aws and uh i think you're still a customer of teradata if i'm mm -hmm. correct yep um so um i mean we've talked about the advantages from the developer standpoint of adding this API. I'm also kind of curious if there's an added degree of business flexibility when you add this this API because it seems like the developers and the code would be even abstracted further away from um, you know need, needing to touch um, what whatever specific big data service um, is being interfaced with under the hood. Um, is that correct? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, so everything is really abstracted in terms of what is being run underneath the hood. As I've said earlier, like we could, we could swap out which version of pig you're using. We could swap out which version of Teradata is running and people don't need to change their job submission because they're still submitting to the same API. Um, we don't have to worry about whether the user needs to install new binaries, whether the command parameters change because Genie can handle that internally about what needs to be done in order to run a job on the, on each of the systems. So, for instance, when we stood up Presto last year, we didn't have to change how users were submitting jobs. They could submit them kind of pretty much the same way they were submitting Hadoop jobs, and it would just run. So they didn't need to worry about what the underlying system really took as an argument or how to communicate with that underlying system. The Genie was taking care of that, and the clients that Genie were using for each of those individual systems were configured by us as administrators and that kind of stuff. So Genie 1.0 was created in 2013, and Genie 2.0 was announced about a year later. What were the constraints of Genie 1.0? 
So Genie won, um, again, kind of before my time. I came on after the start of Genie 2 had already been done, kind of. They were starting designing Genie 2. Sure. But uh, at the time, the entire big data ecosystem was undergoing massive changes, and still is. But it was really it's a transition time between Hadoop 1 and Hadoop 2. Uh, was kind of the main impetus there, and as a lot of people who know big data know, like that brought about Yarn and being able to run a lot of different kinds of applications on a Hadoop cluster that weren't just based around the MapReduce paradigm. And so, Genie One was really limited to being able to run Hadoop, Hive, and Pig jobs, which were really the kind of the main things that would run on a Hadoop One system. But when we came to Hadoop Two, we needed the ability to kind of be more flexible because Hadoop was much more flexible. It could run, in addition to Hadoop, to Hive, Pig, uh, and Hadoop, it would run you know things on Tez. It could run uh, Druid. It could run Scoop. It could run Spark. All these Yarn applications. Now we needed the ability to um, flexibly respond to what users wanted to do and be able to add things to our system without rewriting the system, which was what would have had to happen in Duty One, where if we wanted to add a new type of command or application, we would have to rewrite the system. Whereas with Genie 2, our goal was to kind of decouple that that implementation from what is available so that things became abstracted behind the ideas of commands and applications where you would configure an application, say Hive, and it would say, okay, I'll download the Hive binaries, I'll configure them, and then this, run this command on top of those binaries. Or I'll configure a scoop application, and it'll download the scoop application and run a scoop command without you having to rewrite all the code. As long as you were running an Yarn application, Genie knew how to interact with the system and, and work with it. So that was kind of really what we were doing. And we, we just, like any first generation system, or everybody who's developed software kind of knows that the first time, you, first cut you take of something is always issues you find with it. And there was just various static things we wanted to clean up. And now we're seeing the same thing with Genie 2, where we're kind of looking at it, what do we want to do going forward, and, and that kind of stuff. And you've mentioned Presto a couple times. We did an episode about Presto, so if the listeners are curious about that, they can uh, listen back to that. But um, as an example of uh, you know th- things that are accessible by Genie, um, how does Presto interface with Genie? So Presto doesn't interface with Genie. Genie interfaces with Presto, right? So oh, Presto, sure. Presto has no idea that Genie's there or that it's submitting the jobs. Right, sure. The difference being for Genie's sake that, you know, you implement a Presto job manager and you say, okay, I want to submit to Presto. It downloads the Presto client. And really kind of the, the, the big difference between Hadoop and Presto is really the speed you're talking about, right? Presto's kind of near near real-time ad hoc use cases that's not meant for large, huge amounts of data because it's running in memory and all this stuff. So um, you have to be able, Genie had to be able to, to react quickly because users expect uh, sub-second or multi-second responses as opposed to a pig or hive job where you could run for minutes to hours. So um, from the Presto's perspective, we just wanted to make sure that the, the responsiveness was quick, that adding Genie in the middle between a user and when their query was, was run didn't impact the, the runtime too much. That was kind of the main goal of us there. And we've got it down pretty fast, so we're going to keep that as a goal going forward. And you've mentioned that Netflix doesn't use Spark right now, I think. Or what, what, what is Netflix, does Netflix use Spark right now? 
We do. Um, okay, you do. So we run for our team. We manage kind of the the batch and analytics use cases. So we're running Spark on a Yarn on our EMR Yarn cluster. So we run it as a Yarn application in a multi-tenant environment, and we just rolled that out uh, a couple months ago, I think. And so people are starting to explore and, and test with it and see what we can use it for for ETL and, and all kinds of various analytics use cases. There are other teams within Netflix that are running Spark clusters for uh, real-time and streaming use cases, which we don't really, on our team at least, manage right now. Mm. Um, what sort of future applications do you think there could be for Spark at Netflix? Well, um, all kinds. I mean, I can't. Definitely, we want to look at machine learning um, and, and those kind of use cases on our Spark cluster or Spark application, I guess. And um, we're looking at transferring our ETL off of Pig onto Spark and seeing how that performs. I think that's one of the bigger use cases because uh, you know Pig support is not as good as it once was, and Spark has got a big huge open source movement. So there's a lot of uh, momentum there that we could take advantage of and, and leverage here internally. So I think it's just kind of the next evolution of what our ETL pipeline might look like and some of our machine learning and algorithmic use cases that our users are doing. So there's been a lot of work around um, sort of leveraging containers uh, and technologies like Kubernetes and Mesos and uh, Docker Swarm. Um, how do, do the, does the development of these types of technologies affect how you approached Genie 2.0? So those have kind of emerged, I guess, either at the same time or a little bit after when we were doing Genie 2. Um, we're definitely, for Genie 3, kind of looking at splitting off so right now in genie 2 the the job execution and the web tier kind of sit on the same node and so we're definitely looking at splitting that apart so that the the worker kind of paradigm can be like the service can take in the request and the worker can be split off onto some sort of resource and we're definitely looking at a docker kind of solution where we can stand up a Docker container on a Mesos cluster or on Amazon uh, ECS or something to that effect where we can just have a nice, small, compact service layer farming out jobs to a, to a resource control. So we're definitely looking at that because we want to take advantage of kind of the, the resource controls that Docker and those kind of containers give you where you can say, I want you know, two X CPU and Y memory for my job. And that's not really there today with, with Genie because we just kind of run locally and we don't have that kind of resource control. But going forward, we want to implement that into our job our job submission process where a user can say, I'm going to need this much memory for my for my JVM and et cetera, et cetera. So we're looking at that. It's it's more of a complementary technology than anything competing for sure. We don't view Genie as being uh, anything like Certainly. replacing Mesos or Docker or anything like that. Certainly, but um, Mesos and the Amazon Container Service uh, are competing applications, as I understand. I'm curious if you have looked at the trade-offs between these different types of services. Um, 
Our team hasn't. I know that internally to Netflix, there's large discussions going on about what we want to do with container technology. Um, we do have teams, various teams running Mesos clusters. We have various teams running Docker on Mesos. We have various teams running different kinds of things on Mesos. We have various teams using ECS, and you know we're in conversation with the ECS team. So we're really in the nascent phases of what we want to do there how we want to leverage that. I mean, there's a lot of uh, legacy stuff in, in Netflix about how we currently do deployments and, and leverage resources. So, And there's a lot of trade-offs there because a lot of tooling has been built around that. So we're, we're still exploring what we want to do there. I don't think anyone has a definitive answer of how we're going to go forward yet. That must be interesting because since Netflix is such a giant customer for AWS, I, I guess you must have some say in, or at least you can, like, you know, have uh, an, an an outlet, a reliable output to give your uh, input into what you would like to see in Amazon's container service. Yeah, I think so. I mean, like anything else, you, you know, being a large customer is going to give you certain certain benefits, but at the same time, Amazon has their own business they have to run. So sure. Um, and we're not trying to couple ourselves to Amazon or vice versa. So we're just trying to explore what the best technologies are. I know there's another team really responsible for that, so I don't want to speak too much to it because mm. I don't want to put words in their mouth or sure. <laughs> or anything like that. But we're definitely there's definitely a dialogue going back and forth, and everyone's trying to do what's best and, and trying to really what we want to do is drive with the open source because then you can leverage the entire community versus any type of closed source solution. Sure. So in these types of situations, you know, when you're choosing between Mesos and uh, you know Docker Swarm and all these other things, um, this seems like one of the the types of situations where Netflix sometimes just says like, let's just build our own. Um, do you think there's any possibility that that would happen? Um, <laughs> yeah, there's definitely a possibility because we we do have our own. <laughs> um, okay. We have our we have something called uh, Titan, and I. Th- for containers, and we have something else called uh, something else built on Mesos for for Java Fat Jar kind of running, but that's kind of what's going on in terms of talking about it. I mean, they wanted to present at uh, reInvent, I believe, and I don't think the talk got accepted. So I don't know what the status there is, but that team is now really kind of going back and talking to Amazon about ECS and seeing what can be leveraged from both and merged together and, and see where we're. What's going to be going happening going forward in terms of deployments and that kind of stuff? How good are the um, like? How good it does when you add containers to the mix? Like when you replace uh, a model of of using VMs versus uh, and and with with using containers, like how much better is the resource allocation? Like, have you do you know any benchmarks or? Uh... Um, I don't have any benchmarks personally. You know, the, the bin packing is always a argument that everyone who, who really likes containers uses for, for leveraging resources across of a node and versus a, a fat VM kind of idea. But, um, you know, there's arguments both ways in terms of, you know, security and, and all kinds of things that everyone's trying to, to look into. I don't have any benchmarks to give you, though, in terms of mm. what we're looking towards for um, ubiquity with what we have today versus what kind of advantages we want going forward. I think that every team especially has their own their own metrics for what they're looking at to get out of a certain service. Some teams are just caring about 
making deployments easier for developers. Like, and that's really where a Docker container is kind of advantageous because you know it's very lightweight versus having to create an entire VM just to test out a small feature. What were the API changes that got made in the second version of Genie? Uh, <laughs> there was a ton of changes. I mean, we tried to make the API much more uh, proper RESTful, so describing resources as opposed to sending kind of more uh, RPC-type calls. And then we... It really was driven by the data model changes where in the first time we just really kind of had jobs and, and clusters, but then in Genie 2, we really introduced the idea of a, a command and an application into the data model. And so doing that really changed what API sets. You needed to be able to do typical CRUD operations on all of those resources as well as link them together. So you would want to link uh, various commands to which clusters supported them because we really want to control what runs where. So some, like for now, at least, for example, we don't link our Spark commands to our uh, SLA cluster because we don't really have a use case for that right now. All of our Spark stuff is just ad hoc. So we don't link that in Genie and we just let that kind of run. Um, and versus in Genie 1, you couldn't do anything like that. So we're really kind of, the API changes there really were focused around supporting the data model, supporting the use cases that we had for configuration and execution. The job execution API really didn't change too much because you were still submitting a job. So that really kind of stays structurally sound. It was more the payload that you sent to the API changed because you had to add different parameters to get your job to run. So you mentioned um, that you're working on Genie 3.0 right now. What, what kinds of things are you focusing on in Genie 3.0? <laughs> it's an excellent question. Um, I'd refer mostly to the people to look at the GitHub uh, repository because we're we're really deep into it um, in terms of designing what we want to do for the next iteration. But for Genie two, we really focused on the data model and and the API changes. And I think one thing we didn't really focus on too much was the job execution layer because that really that worked pretty well in terms of how it actually went about launching a job. Uh, so that worked, and we didn't really want to spend much time on that because we wanted to get Genie 2 out the door around the same time we were getting Hadoop 2 out the door internally because um, we needed it to support that. So for Genie 3, we're definitely looking at the robustness of the job execution layer. And like I kind of mentioned earlier, we want to split out the job execution from the web application and so that that can scale much faster and more horizontally. We don't necessarily need a lot of where most people probably don't need a lot of web APIs because they're not we're not taking a ton of traffic. People submit a job and then they wait until the job's completed. That doesn't need to have you know sixty nodes running to accept web traffic. We really need because we run about twenty eight thousand to thirty thousand jobs a day right now. We really need many more resources on the execution side. So launching a lot of genie nodes just for web containers is, doesn't make sense, but whereas we want a lot of stuff on the resources. So um, we're designing that out. We're, we're bringing the REST API up to kind of the next level of REST where we're adding hypermedia extensions um, so you can navigate the API without really knowing about it. We're rewriting the app to leverage uh, Spring Boot because that's kind of you know the new hot microservices thing and it, it really gives us a lot of features that we're looking for out of the box without having to write them ourselves. 
we're looking at improving search for Genie because right now we search like a MySQL database, but we really want to leverage something like Elasticsearch to, to give us much better search performance for people to find their jobs. Uh, just all kinds of things like that, that we're, we're really looking into how to make it a much more robust and hardened platform. I think what our API and our data model is kind of where we want it to be. It supports our needs and I think most needs, but we really want to get more of a kind of enterprise level support application and we're looking at you know security things and stuff like that. Are companies outside of Netflix adopting Genie? Yeah, we've seen we've seen some adoption. We know that um, you know a company called Stitch Fix up in, in San Francisco is using it. Uh, we've heard from a few other companies. I don't want to you know name too many names because I don't want to put them on the spot in case they're not actually using it anymore, but or anything like that. We've we've heard some big companies recently that uh, are talking about adopting it. So we're looking at some pretty good adoption. Um, we think that one of the other things we want to work on with Genie 3 is making deployment a lot easier. So we're, we're hoping that Spring Boot really helps us there in terms of condensing what needs to be deployed and uh, making it just a lot easier to configure things. So that's what we're kind of looking at. One other thing we're really working on is trying to make it a much easier deployment, um, both in a cloud environment and in a data center environment. So you mentioned Spring Boot a couple times. What is that? I haven't heard of it. Uh, are you familiar with the Spring Framework? Sure. In general, yeah. So, Spring Boot is kind of if you haven't worked with Spring in a while, or if you worked with it a while ago, it was you know a lot of XML, a lot of configuration. Oh yeah. To get to get things to work and, and all that stuff that really turns people off to it, uh, to the advantages of using a framework like Spring or or Java Enterprise Edition or whatever your framework you're trying to use. But um, Spring Boot is kind of this new way of doing things where they they do a lot of the configuration for you and kind of get out of the way you just mm -hmm. annotate a few things and you're you're up and running and they have uh, various uh, starter packages that allow you to bring in new components so if you want to use let's say Elasticsearch you just say I want to use Spring Boot Starter Elasticsearch and it adds all the appropriate libraries and mm -hmm. wires them up for you and you just need to change a few properties to get it up and running so um, it's just a kind of a platform for developing services now that the uh, pivotal guys at Pivotal are kind of coming out with for Spring. It's cool. Um, so I had a conversation with Edwin Chin, who did data science at Google, and he said that many companies collect more data than they really need to. And you were talking at the beginning of our conversation about just how fast Netflix's data collection is uh, increasing do you think that Netflix collects more data than they can practically make use of? <laughs> oh, that's probably a better question for a data scientist, but I would say it's definitely a better bet that to, to collect more data than you actually need than collect less data than you need. I mean, you never really know, right, what the next question that somebody's going to be asking for a report or an answer to. Um, from what I've seen in terms of Given the fact that we have a 25 petabyte, petabyte uh, data warehouse, people are querying about 10% of that. I think that's a pretty good representation that we are collecting a uh, reasonable amount of data, given the fact that if they're giving that much of a percentage every day, if you take into a fact that we keep you know, many months of data, they're basically querying a yeah. lot of data up front, yeah. and almost all the data they're, they're using that comes in on a daily basis.
Yeah. So, uh, well, I guess you wouldn't be able to tell me if you would if you think Netflix should downsample its data. <laughs> I, could, I definitely couldn't tell you that. Okay. All right. Well, uh, well, Tom Gianos, thanks for coming on to Software Engineering Daily and talking about Genie and Netflix. Yeah, um, no problem. It's been super interesting. Great. Thanks for having me. Yeah. Uh, have a great weekend. Yeah. Uh, you too. See ya. Bye.